millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, everyone. Here at Agora Podcast Network World Headquarters, October is a very busy month. In addition to our own shows and getting ready for the Sound Education Conference in Boston, which you should all come to, we are running Agoraphobia, a weekly collection of strange and spooky tales, as read by us, your beloved Agora podcasters. This week, Thomas Daly of American Biography and Chris Stewart of the History of China podcast both did segments, but the big event is going to be coming next week, when the guys from the Cannonball and yours truly, discuss H.P. Lovecraft and the most scary story ever told. Racism. You won't want to miss that, nor the other segments coming each week of October. To check it out, find the Agora Podcast Network podcast feed wherever fine podcast networks are sold, and look for the episodes marked Agoraphobia. I would also like to talk to you all today, once again, about the History of Vikings podcast. Now, as I've mentioned, the History of Vikings podcast is, of course, a podcast about tableware. From Wedgwood Blue China to Wexford Crystal, come join Sir Harold Fleming Eaglethorpe as we pick our way carefully and delicately through the fascinating history of the breakable dishes that hold up our food. We will come together to speak in soft tones, afraid that speaking too loudly will cause someone to startle and drop a priceless teacup from the reign of Edward V. Now, this week on the History of Vikings, we will be discussing the pinky position with a panel of... Whoa, stop. That's no history of the Vikings. Vikinger ruled the waves for 300 years, pillaging, smashing tableware, playing metal music, sailing, burning monasteries and hornless helmets, trading, murdering, sometimes both on the same trip, ruling from like Sicily to Kiev to Greenland and beyond. Dude, like Danelaw, Normandy, Dublin, we still have Thor's Day, Odin's Day. We get everyday words like knife, leather, even husband and window from them. Also the word heathen. Eric the Red, Harold Bluetooth, Ragnarok, Berserker Bear Warrior swinging an axe while tripping balls on a Berserker Gung. And we get the word knitting from them too, which I do to calm down. Mostly peaceful farmers though, right? And the Old North Sagas? Epic poetry about their sheep? Wait, what? That's right, Travis. And if you want to know more about the Vikings, then I encourage you to check out the actual History of Vikings podcast, hosted by Noah Tetzner, and available wherever fine tableware is sold. This month we have some special donors to thank. Last month I went through my records, and I uncovered at least one person who I may have forgotten to thank. So, I'm just going to start out by saying, if you've donated money, or up to your donation, and I haven't thanked you, please get in touch just to let me know. Um, things are 
somewhat chaotic around here in general. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to leave anybody out. So despite my own occasional incompetence, the thing is that we need to shower our donors and patrons with honor and praise. This month we have Roy, who shall be known henceforth by his own request as Roy, Lord of Bubonic Vibrations. We also have patron Brandon, who shall be known henceforth as Earl Brandon, the wallet chain of the nation. Donor Jeffrey shall now be known as Sir Jeffrey, 35th founder of Rome, Ohio. And last but certainly not least, we have donor Nicholas, who shall be known henceforward as Viscount Nicholas, the pale death of the beat chip. Thank you to all my donors and patrons, and if you wish to join their Surrey ranks, please go to my website store page, which is, uh, uh, the, the website is Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com and then you'll see the store page there and you can click buttons and go to either PayPal to make a secure donation or go to Patreon to securely become a recurring donor. Um, I also need to thank uh, a lot of you out there. Uh, um, uh, you may have seen the post on the Facebook page. Um, I meant to post something about it but with all the ads that have been going on I didn't want to overload you guys. Um, my co-host, Nori, the cat, uh, who has been in numerous uh, Wittenberg to Westphalia episodes, was diagnosed about a month ago with cancer, uh, the cat version of breast cancer. And uh, there's a surgery. It's, it's a very malignant kind of cancer, but there's a surgery that's very successful at combating it. Um, as you know, I'm not exceptionally financially stable. Uh, due to a variety of things. Uh, but, you know, you guys have always been really generous, uh, and to help uh, out with the surgery, uh, my wife and I put up a GoFundMe page. We didn't meet our goal, uh, so any continued donations would be great, but we did make enough of the goal to make the first payment on the surgery, which actually happened today. Uh, Nori is upstairs. Uh, she is very angry. Uh, but the vet was really happy with how she did. It was a fairly major surgery, like, the incision goes pretty much the length of her torso. Um, but the good news is the vet's really happy. She seems like she's in really good shape for a cat who just had a major surgery and is on a ton of drugs. Uh, and so, uh, with all of your support, a number of you donated to the GoFundMe page, and we really appreciate it. Um, I didn't make a thing on the GoFundMe page about anyone who donated would get, you know, a snarky regnal name. If you donated and you want one, get in touch. Um, the thing we did say for the GoFundMe page is that my wife will knit you a hat. Uh, if you want a hat, she is going to get in touch with everybody, I think. But if you don't hear from her in the next week, uh, shoot her an email. The address is on the GoFundMe page. But anyway, you guys have always been so wonderfully generous, and it has really helped us out. Um, you know, I, I don't know what we would do if I hadn't thought to start a podcast five years ago. Uh, so, uh, again, thank you all so much. Um, it, this has been an amazing ride, uh, and uh, let, let me just get started. They must have received at least two orders. The first to draw their bows, the second to loose their strings. How the orders were synchronized between different groups of archers is an unanswerable question. But when the shout went up, or the banner down, four clouds of arrows would have streaked 
out of the English line to reach a height of 100 feet before turning in flight to plunge at a steeper angle on and among the French men-at-arms opposite. These arrows cannot, however, given their terminal velocity and angle of impact, have done a great deal of harm, at least to the men-at-arms. For armor, by the early 15th century, was composed almost completely of steel sheet, in place of the iron mail which had been worn on the body until 50 years before, but now only covered the awkward points of movement around the shoulder and groin. It was deliberately designed, moreover, to offer a glancing surface, and the contemporary helmet, a wide-brimmed bassinet, was particularly adapted to deflect blows away from the head and the shoulders. We can suppose that the armor served its purpose effectively in this, the opening moment of Agincourt, but one should not dismiss the moral effect of the arrow strike. The singing of the arrows would not have moved ahead of their flight, but the sound of their impact must have been extraordinarily cacophonous a weird clanking and banging on the bowed heads and backs of the Frenchmen-at-arms. If any of the horses in the flanking squadrons were hit, they were likely to have been hurt, however, even at this extreme range, for they were armored only on their faces and chests, and the chisel-pointed head of the cloth-yard arrow would have penetrated the padded cloth hangings which covered the rest of their bodies. Animal cries of pain and fear would have risen above the metallic clatter. Quote from John Keegan's Face of Battle, as read by Thomas Daly of the American Biography Podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. This is episode 47, Podversary Question and Answer. Today is, once again, another Podversary episode. I believe it's number five. I meant to look that up, but I didn't. Let's move on. Well, it's taken five years, but we finally did it, you guys. We finally got enough questions for a question and answer episode. So today I'm going off script so that I can answer four of your questions um, that have been sent to me in the past year that are things that, you know, I can answer in this, this format. So here we go. Now, listener, patron, and friend of the show, His Holiness Pope Steve, finder of the sour cream and onion potato chip of St. Joe, had several questions for us for this episode. Uh, so the first one is if uh, bah, 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 bah. what were the increases in crop yields from the use of the, of the heavy plow in Northern Europe? Was the new plow a big leap in technology? To put it in context, how did the yields change in relation to Southern Europe that didn't adopt the same plow technology? This is a great question. And I can't give you a straight answer. I'm sorry. Um, it's really difficult to compare crop yields from different places. Uh, and this is why so many historians make their bread and butter arguing over crop yields in the Middle Ages. Uh, this is actually a thing. <laughs> a very fascinating... Well, it's an academic subdiscipline anyway. Um, so, 
basically, we know there's yields that are different from different kinds of crops. All within the general grain family, but different kinds of grain. So, you know, barley, oats, wheat, they're all different, very related subspecies, but they're different. They respond differently to different climates. Different climates are also different, have different levels of fertility. Um, you know, in some places, uh, in, in, you know, England, the crop yields are extremely high. In some places, they're fairly low. It's the same in Southern Europe. You have some areas which are extraordinarily fertile, like the, the, the main part of the Po Valley is extremely fertile. But then a lot of Italy and Southern Europe are these sort of sandy upland areas where people are trying to scrape fields out of something that, you know, I wouldn't put a flower bed in. So, um, there's different microclimates, different climatological zones, different subspecies of uh, crops that are getting planted. Then there's the different kinds of farming practice. Now, as to whether the heavy plow was a huge technological leap, I'm going to say yes, but I'm going to caveat that, because <laughs> of course I am. Um, it was a huge leap. It was a leap that took several centuries to happen, uh, and those several centuries happened to be probably started during the crisis of the third century, <laughs> to be honest, uh, and then over the entire fall of the Roman Empire, the heavy plow is kind of puttering away in the background being developed. Um, because before the heavy plow, there are a couple techniques that I'm going to talk about later, but there there were plows before the heavy plow, uh, but usually they didn't have wheels. So there was this whole... Pro and they definitely didn't have the mold board because it was too heavy to hold up, you know, like, while you're trying to scrape through the soil, getting dragged along behind an oxen and, you know, hold physically with your arms the plow at the right height. Mold board plows were just too heavy. So there was this gradual development where they first put wheels on the plow and had a system for keeping it at the right height. And then, you know, uh, then they realized that they could make them heavier. And they added the mold board with mold board with a, with a steel tip or an iron tip, really. Um, now in terms of whether it was a big leap forward, I think yes, but it's probably not the kind of leap that you notice necessarily in terms of the raw crop yields so much as the yield per person. Um, because usually, you know, when you're talking about crop wheels, there's, there's always a different way of looking at it. The stuff we've been talking about is how much seed you get back versus how much you put in the ground. Another way of talking about it is how much seed you get, or, you know, how much, how many bushels of grain you get per hectare or per acre. Uh, that's another way of looking at it. The thing that's probably important to talk about in terms of the contribution of the heavy plow is the amount of grain you got back versus man hours that you actually put into it. Now, I don't have any figures for you, unfortunately. Basically, the idea with the heavy plow was that, you know, one person using the plow, the heavy plow and a team of oxen could cover a lot more territory by themselves than one person uh, without the plow which just made it, it possible to generate more, you know, grain per mouth, essentially, is what we're talking about. Um, to really get into why, um, 
First, we need to talk about what plowing is. <laughs> and this is something that I actually did this research after, you know, I knew I was going to be talking about heavy plows at some point, but this is like two years ago I, I started doing this research. I, I was looking up into the importance of the heavy plows uh, and realized that I had no idea what the point of a plow was. You know, like many of you, I, I do not farm for my living. Um, but I've done a bunch of gardening in my life. Uh, you know, my mom was a, an avid gardener and, and I'm trying to do the same. Uh, so, you know, when, when we plant, my mom always grew things from seed, uh, you know, for the most part. And so when we would plant, we would go out into the garden, we would dig a little hole, we'd throw a little compost at the bottom of the hole, we'd put in a seed, we'd cover the hole, with the, the soil we dug out of it, and we'd spray it with water. Okay, some of this uh, a medieval farmer is not going to have the capacity to do. They did not have running water. So watering the fields is sort of, that's right out. The rain has to do that. But, you know, the, the thing that I was curious about was what does plowing do in terms of this whole thing, this whole process? Uh, how does the thing that I do in my garden with a trowel correspond to what uh, a peasant farmer was doing in the Middle Ages or what a modern farmer does with their tractor. So, uh, long story short, there's a couple differences between the tomato plants that I was planting with my mom and grain. That's sort of the first level. Most plants in the world won't germinate if you just drop them on the top of the ground. Um, grain will, because it's a grass. Grasses will do that. Um, so, grasses don't need to be dug into a hole in the ground. They do better if you do, but, it, you know, it's not necessary. Uh, what they need is they need fertile soil, um, water, which the medieval peasantry couldn't control, and they need uh, looser soil, right? So, basically what plowing does is the stages of the, the medieval farming process were that you would go through and put manure out on the field, uh, right? That's your fertilizer or compost or whatever. Um, then they would plow. They might plow a couple times, but they would definitely plow once. And what that does is it takes the compacted soil that's got grass on it, or in it even weeds and the remains of the last crop, and the plow comes through and just rips it up and turns it over and cuts it all up, essentially in one process. It also takes the manure that's on top, dumps it to the bottom. And, you know, in the process of doing this, any nutrients that are further down in the soil, they get brought up to the top and vice versa. It just completely homogenizes the soil so that it can refresh the nutrient level in the soil and um, it also fluffs the soil so that the, the wheat has an easier time taking root. At that point, in most places in Europe, um, once all that was done, the peasants would come through and just kind of broadcast the seed, which is, you know, you've probably seen in movies pictures of people doing this, which is, you know, reaching into a bag full of seed and flinging it out. Um, this certainly is um, a way of doing it. I I'm going to assume that they were probably a little bit more um, 
careful in their broadcasting than maybe you see in the movies. But in general, that is roughly what they were doing. They were just flinging the seed. Because these are grasses. You can just drop them on the top and they'll germinate. What they did in some places what they was that they used something called a seed drill. Um, which is a stick, essentially, with a little bit of a hollow at the top. You put the seed in there, you jam it in the ground, and you pull it out. And that just pushes the seed down just a little bit into the soil. Um, and that you know, gives the seed a little bit of an even better chance of germinating. And that seed drills do increase uh, crop yields somewhat. Now, in the process of researching all this, I, I learned about the seed drills, and it was like, not everyone did that. And I'm like, well, why are, are people still using seed drills? What is this? So I looked it up, and I found this awesome article from uh, the USDA talking about research that they'd been doing that basically said that um, we've put all this work in, you know, we, we've got this great um, industrial agriculture system now that feeds the world, but it's heavily dependent on chemical fertilizers. And part of the reason for that is that when we go through and we do this plowing, it fluffs up the soil, which is great short term for the seeds, but long term it encourages um, erosion, which, you know, the fertile topsoil part of the soil is blowing away or washing away, and in the long term, that exhausts the soil. So there's been a lot of work done in the last 30, 40 years into researching how to grow all these crops without disturbing the soil quite so much and uh, reduce erosion. One of the things that farmers are doing now in a lot of places in the country is using GPSs to guide their tractors and follow the contours of the land so that the furrows that they plow up are all parallel to the, or, or um, they're perpendicular to the slope, right? So instead of it being, uh, you know, creating a channel that goes downhill that the water can wash all the nutrients down, it's um, a bunch of hills opposing the flow of water. So that's sort of already been implemented really wide scale. What a lot of farmers are doing now and what this paper was looking into was um, essentially not plowing at all. Um, skipping that, using uh, a minimal plow technique, uh, often just raking the soil, um, and then using seed drills to just nail in at predetermined short interval intervals the wheat seeds. Very, very minimal disturbance of the topsoil really drastically reduces erosion, and the crop yields are either the same or better. Uh, so I thought that was all fascinating. Huge tangent off of what I was talking about in terms of Steve's question, but really, what else did you expect? So, given... Um, Given what we've just talked about, the purpose of plowing is pretty much just that it homogenizes and modifies the upper 12 to 25 centimeters, uh, 5 to 10 inches of the soil, to form a plow layer, which is where the growing happens for the plants that are planted. Point of all this, in terms of Steve's question, is what happened before. Um, before the heavy plow, people weren't going out into their fields and just kind of throwing seeds on the ground and hoping for the best. Uh, and they also weren't going out with trowels and digging little holes and putting their wheat, wheat in one seed at a time. Um, what they did is that they used, for the most part, hoes. 
So a you you know what a hoe is. You've seen it. Uh, long pole, uh, metal hook with a flat blade at the end. And you, it, all it's used for is just the thing that I was just talking about with the plow. Um, it's got other uses these days uh, in gardening. But really what you're doing is just chopping up the soil. It's basically an axe. Uh, it's not sharp, but it's just you're chopping into the soil and pulling it and just breaking it all up. F fluffing it up. Um, there are a bunch of what you might call proto-plow technologies or plow-like technologies or light plows that developed over the entire course of uh, Neolithic civilization uh, from the time of the Fertile Crescent onwards. The Egyptians had something called an adz, which was basically, um, you know, sort of, the, it was attached to an animal, uh, and there was basically a stick in the ground and it had handles and the the animal would go and they would just sort of scrape along the soil not too different from what these modern farmers are doing with uh their minimally invasive things but oh you know less uh well advanced and with less of a point to be honest um so similar light plows existed by the time of the roman empire all over the place and it's, it's much easier to use these things. They don't have wheels. At most, they have runners. Uh, and they're light enough that you can maneuver them. The, the only turning radius you have to deal with is just, you know, getting your cow to turn around or your ox, uh, whatever. So it's a lot easier to use these in smaller and more compact places. Of course, there's, they have nothing over the hoe. Uh, you know, as long as a human can climb into a spot, a person with a hoe can more or less take a whack at the soil and fluff it up with that. So these are the technologies that the heavy plow replaced. Um, like I talked about in the last episode, um, the heavy plow has real turning radius issues, but like I've just been talking about, uh, it saves a ton of labor. It can blast through a lot of territory much more easily, um, and it's, it's much more effective at sort of fluffing and churning the soil uh, and, and releasing those nutrients. If you have access to the fertilizer to make use of it properly, you can get better crop yields, definitely. I can't give you a concept of scale, though, unfortunately. Um, but it's, it's better on a whole bunch of different levels. It's a labor-saving device. It, it releases more nutrients. It lets you plow things into the soil more fully. Uh, so it, it was, you know, it's definitely one of those... If you can use it, it's definitely got an advantage. Um, that said, in Southern Europe, it's not like they were cripplingly suffer suffering by not having access to these technologies. A lot of the places in Southern Europe that they were farming were marginal anyway. Um, and a lot of the places that were very fertile um, may have had some use of the heavy plow, uh, in the Po Valley region, uh, according to some, some stuff I was just reading. Um, but even if they weren't, you know, it's not, it's not so much that the yields were remarkably different. It's really more about the number of people. You know, for, for the same amount of field in Southern Europe, you'd really need to get everybody in the household out with, an, with, a, with a hoe 
taking a whack at it. And again, like I mentioned in that last episode, that Southern European household, you want it to be as big as possible so you can get as many hands on any one job as you can. In Northern Europe, the, the labor-saving device let the households get smaller. So, um, I, I, th I hope that uh, answers Steve's question fully. Obviously, um, there's a ton of there there in that question. Um, and... Um, I hope that that uh, gives you some idea of what the, the, the shape of the answer is, right? Time for the next question. One that I've gotten a lot on the easier side, just to get this out of the way. A lot of people have asked about the intro and outro music. The intro and outro music of this show are recut samples of two songs by the band Not A Surf. The intro music is a song called See These Bones, and the outro music is from a song called Ice on the Wing. Both are off of the album Lucky. Many of the questions then proceed on to why these pieces of music. Well, I like them. Not a Surf is one of my favorite bands, and they have been since uh, my wife introduced me to them uh, around the time we started dating. And... I think that they are very appropriate pieces of music for my show, especially in terms of the themes that I'm going for. Um, you know, in particular, the line, um, everybody's right, no one's sorry. This may be something of a spoiler, but when we get to, like, you know, the Thirty Years' War, um, the there aren't going to be a ton of clear good guys. Let's put it that way. What there is going to be is plenty more not a surf from here until the end of the show, because I really like these songs. Moving on. Um, so, Steve had another question. Um, he said, what is up with Spain? Were they medieval, modern, or something else? And I, I wrote back to him and clarified that he's asking, what's up with Spain during the early modern period? Um, they seem like this really important powerhouse, um, but internally they, they have a lot of weird dynamics going on. I'm going to be talking a ton about Spain later on, uh, because obviously they're super important to this story. They were, they were the, the powerhouse of Europe, uh, at the time in the, in their era. The thing with them, without giving too much away, basically, is that they were a completely medieval political entity um let me backtrack a little bit we've talked a bunch about feudalism and how it worked in this show um feudalism worked best when you had an enemy right um england was able to be extraordinarily centralized because it was a conquest state um and you know when the king has taken is taking over new territory, is getting loot. He's able to keep his nobles on side, keep everyone pointing in the same direction, and is able to get people to be okay with him, you know, imposing law and order and stuff. Um, when there's peace, people, you know, these these privileged warrior elites start to get, you know, cranky about having to face the same justice as everyone else does and things like that, and that creates problems. Spain, the monarchies of Spain, going into the, the late Middle Ages, had an enemy. Um, they hated each other. Well, 
They were enemies with each other, too, but it was much easier for them to get together and agree on attacking the Muslims in Spain than each other, and so they all benefited from that. By the time of the final conquest of Spain, we're basically talking about a medieval state, but it's a medieval state living its best life, you know? Um, it's a completely feudal society, but it's doing the things that feudal societies do best. It's being all about the god, um, and pointing at an enemy, getting lots of loot, taking conquests, and competing for favor with the king and queen so that you can get rewarded with land. Um, if nothing else had happened other than the, the final conquest of um, Muslim Spain, you know, it, it's interesting to wonder what would have happened to Spain. I think they would have gone into decline a lot earlier, um, though they may have started competing with Portugal for conquests in North Africa. I, that window probably that probably wouldn't have given them quite so much, so many benefits. What actually happened is that their empire was completely supercharged by discovering the New World, which gave them tons of loot, uh, a place to dump undesirable populations, uh, and just massive amounts of trade that they were, you know, not designed to compete for, but were able to just take, right? <laughs> so... Um, then they, to a certain extent, they never really had to deal with the transitions that the other states in Europe were making. These were all, all these, these places in Europe were these feudal monarchies that were moving to becoming centralized state systems. Um, and Spain, to a really large extent, never had to do the internal reforms necessary to make that happen. They were able to buy a facsimile of it, essentially, with their gold. Um, they were able to take the quick route to utilize, to, um, to this stuff without having to reform. Uh, and then, of course, you know, as we'll see much, much later on, uh, when the money stopped and other states were able to uh, compete without that gold then creates that created problems. So that's in a nutshell. Um, I'm going to give a more full answer to this one later on. But, yeah, so I guess that's it for today. You know, that's all the questions I got. And so this was a good show, everybody. Bye. Night. Wait, weren't you going to talk about longbows? Well, um, I don't know. I. It seems like people really wanted to hear what you had to say about longbows. You know, I, I really think I need to shampoo my beard, though. Ben. David? Come on, Ben. Tell us what you think about the longbows. Come on, Ben. Tell us what you think about the longbows. When did you get to Providence? Come on, Ben. Tell us about longbows. Ben. We want ben. to know what you think about on, longbows, ben. ben. Tell us what you think about the longbows. Sure, Ben. Come tell on. us what you think about the longbows. Longbow. Tell us what you think about the longbows. Longbows? Come on, Ben. Why don't you talk about longbows? What are your thoughts on that? So, how exactly does the longbow work? What do you think about the longbow? It's the best, right? Longbow. Longbow. 
Okay, okay, weird, trippy LSD versions of my podcast colleagues and listeners and family members. Okay, so you want to learn about the longbows. Fine. Okay, so a couple things about longbows. There's some... The reason I didn't want to talk about it is there's a couple key myths about longbows, and uh, they tend to stray into weird political territory that I don't want to talk about. However, since everyone's insisting, here we go. Three key myths about longbows. Number one, longbows were a medieval superweapon that cut down knights as effectively as early firearms. They pierced right through armor. Number two, the French could have had longbows, but they were too afraid of arming the peasants, slash the peasants weren't loyal enough, slash the French peasants were just too lazy. Three, because the English did have longbows, the government had to respond to the demands of the peasants for rights, which is why the English got a parliament. Discussions about this last myth tend to stray into territory that involves some key issues of current American politics and certain amendments to the U.S. Constitution that I don't want to talk about, at least not right now. Full discussions of the issues involved, as we'll see, are going to involve a much more full 3D discussion of society in Europe. However, I can address this myth for right now anyway, at least in a quick form. But we'll get back to that. Let's take these in order. Number one. Longbows as some sort of medieval superweapon. Um, most competent historians these days, based on work that's been done by human beings using recreated longbows, as well as based on the few historical, uh, the few archaeological examples of longbows that exist, do not think that a longbow arrow, even with a bodkin head, could pierce plate mail. Let me repeat that in a little bit more of a sensical way. Even the strongest longbow probably couldn't pierce plate armor with a, no matter what the head of the arrow was. It could pierce chainmail, and that depends on things like the pull strength of the bow, the head, the range uh, at which, you know, and the, the elevation. If you're shooting in a parabolic arc, it's, it's less likely to have... Uh, pierced chainmail, and it also depends on the ply. Um, much like toilet paper, chainmail had plies. Uh, by the time of the Hundred Years' War, uh, most knights for the vital parts of the body were wearing four-ply chainmail, so four, four different layers. Um, and, you know, potentially, uh, you know, maybe the the eight arrows wouldn't have pierced that much chainmail, but I I'm willing to give this to the myth that longbows could pierce chainmail. However, even by the time of the Battle of Cressy, which is the earliest deployment of the longbow against French knights, um, the longbow, the, the um, chainmail was not covering the entire body, uh, or it was covering the entire body, but then there were plates on top of it. Um, However, there were some pretty vital sections, like the midriff, that would have been protected by chainmail in most circumstances. So we know this about 
longbows, not piercing plate armor. Like I said, from some uh, tests that have been done, uh, from the draw strength of uh, a couple examples of longbows that still exist in archives in England, um, and then also just from a careful from a careful examination of the actual historical records of the battles, um, you know, the battles where the, the longbows are successful uh, happen less and less often through time as plate armor is developed. And once plate armor is fully implemented, by sort of the end of the Hundred Years' War into the Wars of the Roses, at that point, full plate is on deployment in the battlefield, and longbows don't really ever have a major role in battles after that against armies of knights, except for a couple situations where people make major tactical errors, like removing their armor. Um, and it should also say that the development of plate armor was not done to protect knights against longbows. Uh, the first deployment of full plate was in Italy. Uh, full plate is just, it turns out, good at defending against a lot of things. Um, I should also say that you know, we shouldn't just imagine flat plates. The The plate armor was actually designed like modern tank armor is to, to force blows to glance off. So there really was just no way that, ar that arrows were going to do anything against plate. Um, now, they could injure the horses, which is why after the Battle of Cressy, uh, anyone fighting an English army would fight dismounted. Because, um, the you know, the number of people... I think it's not wrong for me to say that very few people on a medieval battlefield would have uh, knight and horse in full plate. Uh, that was just ludicrously expensive. Um, even, you know, frontline, ridiculously wealthy people, if they armored their horse, it was probably with chainmail. So, uh, with maybe a breastplate or something and, uh, and things like that. So, um... A storm of arrows being fired at a group of knights could still be exceptionally effective at breaking up a cavalry charge, mostly through killing the horses, um, which is an important point. And then that disorganizes the attack, and, and that leads to a lot of uh, other important things. Um, I'm ahead of myself a little bit, so let's just cut back a little bit. Where did the longbow come from? Um, the British... The, the English monarchy and its forces developed longbows and started deploying them because people, probably in Wales, were already using them. Um, and the British were just fighting for centuries against people in Wales and Scotland, but in that sort of wonderful feudal way that they did, where no one was really interested in a decisive victory, um, they were more interested in raiding uh, for fun and profit. Uh, and so, over time, Welsh people got drafted or conscripted or paid uh, as mercenaries or just soldiers to join the, the English military. Uh, and then these soldiers ended up getting deployed to the north against the Scots, where they were extremely effective because the Scots, first of all, had this really rugged terrain and the English, you know, knight-based armies didn't really do too well in rugged terrain. That's why one of the reasons it took them so long against the Welsh, to be honest. Um, but... The Scots in Scotland favored pike formations. Uh, you know, 12-foot-long spears make it really difficult if you're facing, you know, determined resistance, uh, make it really difficult for a knight to just charge in there and take care of the infantrymen. Uh, so having the this trained 
uh, you know, semi-professional group of archers from Wales turned out to be really useful in Scotland. And this is sort of how the British military developed. They had several generations, you know, several centuries of constant low-level border warfare where they developed a, a really competent, you might call it, uh, this is anachronistic, but it's sort of an officer class, right? You've developed um, people in the gentry and the nobility who are used to leading troops in battle and have learned that just charging in with a bunch of knights isn't actually all that effective when you're facing a, a bunch of spears or uneven terrain. And so they, they've learned battle tactics that are beyond bog standard for the time. Uh, the men are paid. Uh, there's a logistical support because, again, we're operating in hostile territory against guerrilla forces. You need to bring in food. You, you need to supply things. Uh, so the, the English military has developed lots of capacities that the rest of Europe hasn't necessarily. And it's not down to one simple bow. Um, because, and this is another thing. I, I meant to talk about this earlier. This is why I don't talk about longbows. As, as much as the politics, it's because there's so many little dead ends and alleys and I can talk about it forever. Okay. The longbow is a simple bow. Um... What does that mean? It doesn't... I'm not trying to disparage it. Um, there's... There's two... Broadly speaking, there's two kinds of bows. Really three, but... Two kinds of bows. There's simple bows and compound bows. Uh, if you think about it, a bow... The different parts of the bow are doing different things. The inside of the curve wants to face compression. It's getting compressed. The outside of the bow is being stretched. Compound bows use different materials to better respond to those different forces. These get laminated together with glue and pressure and high heat, and it takes forever to make these bows, but they're works of art, and they have really a ton of power for their size. The English longbow does not do that. The English longbow is made out of one single piece of wood. There are a couple different ways to make simple bows. Um... The English longbow is basically a wedge or a cylind cylindrical piece of wood um, where the heart, uh, the heartwood, which is the middle part of the tree, which is very stiff, like a spine, to, to give stiffness to the tree. So that deals with the compression. And then the sapwood, which is more stretchy, it's the outside part of the tree so it doesn't break, uh, that's on the outside part of the bow. So to a certain extent, um, the, the English used, the English and the Welsh used the, the natural characteristics of the yew tree, because these are always made from yew, um, to advantage for this. But really, it's just a piece of wood, right? Um, we're not talking about fancy magical technology. Yew trees grew all over Europe. People made bows all over Europe. People made bows and put the heart wood on the middle and the you know, the sapwood on the outside. Um, when you're using a simple bow, and you're not using any kind of fancy technology like a crossbow, at a certain point, you can't make the wood any thicker, although that, that does affect it. Um, one of the things you can do to get more power out of the bow is to make it longer. So the long bow is a simple bow, but long. Okay. This isn't magical technology. Uh, anyone could have made a longbow anywhere in Europe. Using it required 
experience and training and a lifetime of practice. Uh, and that's one of the advantages, you know, skipping way ahead, the one of the big advantages that gun, firearms would have over longbows is that the, the learning curve is, uh, you know, a lot harder for, for, for bows in general. Uh, and this was an issue for any, any of the bow-wielding uh, traditional militaries. Uh, one of the, you know, big issues with the Battle of Lepanto for the Ottomans wasn't so much that they would not have fleets anymore. They, could all, they had tons of money and they could build new fleets. Uh, but a ton of archers were actually killed in the Battle of Lepanto, which reduced their military effectiveness for a little while. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Getting back to the longbow. Um, so, we have this simple bow. We have experienced people wielding it. Um, we've developed this sort of logistical power in the English military. It gets deployed in France at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. I'm going to just touch on a couple key battles to, to highlight what the bow actually did in battle. Battle of Cressy. We're facing knights who are mostly armed in chainmail, but have, you know, metal shields, best breastplates, uh, plate on their legs, probably. Um, some of the horses are armored, but most aren't. They charge across a field that is muddy, because it had just rained. Uh, the knights don't even get to the line. The Battle of Cressy is what you think of when you think of knights charging English longbows. It turns out none of the other battles worked that way. Um, but the, the cavalry charge itself, the French threw everything into this cavalry charge across a muddy field, and the attack got completely blown up by the longbows. Now, whether that was because the knights were getting killed, I don't think... So. I mean, to a certain extent, probably because they were heavily... still heavily dependent on chainmail. But I think the real thing is that the horses were slaughtered. And then once the horses went down, the men were th thrown out into these muddy fields where all the reports say that they basically drowned. You know, all these people were piling in into this muddy field uh, and, you know, the knights were sinking down into the mud. So that was the Battle of Cressy. They didn't even really make it to the line. Agincourt was completely different. Um, the longbow still really served an important role. Um, so the, the basics of the battle are the French send forward their crossbowmen first. The crossbowmen can't match the rate of fire of the longbowmen. So they withdraw. Uh, there's a weak attempt at a cavalry charge, which is repulsed easily. But the main thing is that the French have learned from the Battle of Cressy that you don't attack on horseback. Um... Also, the longbowmen have, like, stakes driven into the ground. They've actually fortified their position. So charging the archers on horseback won't do anything. So then the French knights dismount, and then they charge on foot. Okay, they've learned. Um, but they don't charge the archers. They charge right into the middle of the line, which is where the English men-at-arms are. So... At the Battle of Agincourt, you aren't seeing, you know, uh, knights fighting a, a thin line of archers. You're seeing knights fighting knights. The archers are there, and they're shooting at the men who are charging across the field in their, uh, in their armor. But by all accounts, they made it. <laughs> so the longbow wasn't like scything down French knights left or right. The vast majority of the French 
military force made it across the field and engaged in hand-to-hand combat with the, the English knights on an even, even basis. However, they had, by all accounts, ignored the longbowmen who were at the flanks, who then basically charged in, came around the sides, around the back, and then started attacking the knights from the rear. Meanwhile, the, the, French, the, the English men-at-arms were extremely professional, very experienced warriors, so even though there were fewer of them, they were hardened warriors, uh, which you maybe couldn't necessarily say about the French at the time, who were then also being attacked in the flanks and rear by the longbowmen. Now, the longbowmen weren't unarmored. They had some armor. They had some mail. Uh, and they had daggers or short swords, but mostly daggers, and they were lighter. So this is classic, you know, rogue versus tank stuff, right? Uh, the the the, t- the knights have limited peripheral vision because they've got their masks down. The, the archers come in and slip the dagger into the visor, you know? Um, and the battle's a disaster for the French. Now, what did the French do wrong? They charged a fortified position... <laughs> The the position was protected on the flanks by two forests. The English had dug in the archers with stakes. The French, the English were prepared and waiting for the charge, and the French just walked straight into it in a frontal attack. This, you know, losing this battle isn't some miracle. Okay, um, Poitiers, Poitiers, um, is even more of the same. Um, the longbows played an important part. Um, but it was, you know, Poitiers is kind of, if you took Cressy and Agincourt and mushed it together, <laughs> um, the, the French had to charge, uh, a entrenched position, uh, with archers, uh, and then there was, there was a muddy, a, a muddy patch and then a hedge <laughs> that the French were trying to scramble up and they really just shouldn't have attacked. Like, that's what it comes down to. They didn't have a ton of choice politically, but they just the, the attack was a disaster. They attached, attacked full front, right down the middle of an, a heavily entrenched position, and they lost horribly. Okay, so if what we learn from this isn't that the English longbow is some kind of ridiculous superweapon, it's that English the English army had developed a really deep institutional knowledge of set-piece battle tactics, of um, how to conduct a campaign well, logistical support, and things along those lines. Uh, They had a semi-professional army with uh, officers and men with lots of experience that they developed over generations of fighting in their border wars. The French just had the knightly class, uh, and then they had some mercenary auxiliaries. The knightly class, maybe, uh, while the French were constantly engaged in some kind of war, they had a, a big territory to draw on, and their wars sort of weren't as uh, serious, let's say, in some ways, as the English ones, and not as many people were involved, and the campaigns weren't as difficult. Uh, they weren't dealing with terrain, they weren't dealing with unexpected circumstances, so the, the French army was just not as good as the English army. There was really nothing that happened at any of these battles that hadn't happened elsewhere in the Middle Ages. I mean, the Battle of Hastings was, you know, a, a certain version of this, where it was actually the Norman uh, archers who helped 
break up the infantry formation of the of the English, right? All right. So, okay, longbows, not a crazy super weapon. Myth number two, the French could have had the longbow, but didn't because they were somehow worse. As an organization, as a society, they were morally inferior, blah, 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 blah. So yes and no. Um, they had peasants who would wield bows, and they had yew trees. Uh, but again... They had no tradition of martial archery. The whole longbow tradition came out of protracted and militaristic English contact with the Welsh. Now, it wasn't just the Welsh who practiced archery by the time of the Hundred Years' War. It was widespread. But martial archery as a tradition really came out of contact between English peasants and Welsh peasants. And the whole thing that that implied. That's actually really specific to England. To the whole British Isles. That really doesn't develop anywhere else. Uh, the French did pass some laws to try and get people to practice archery, but it didn't work. But it, it sort of, it was never going to. It's not that they were afraid that the, the archers, that the, you know, French peasants would, uh, would learn archery and suddenly learn that they could kill knights. And that, that was scary. I mean, the, the French government tried. And, um... You know, it's often suggested that the, the French nobility didn't support the initiative. They, you can't just make archers appear. That's the thing. Like, um, we have archaeological evidence and, you know, lots of written testimony that English, like, experienced English longbowmen, you can spot them a mile away because they all had hunchbacks. They'd spent their entire lives practicing bows to the point that it, like, massively changed their muscular physical anatomy. You can't just pass a law and expect a bunch of peasants to learn how to use a bow. Nor was it particularly important that they did so. Remember how the French won the Hundred Years' War? <laughs> and, and this is the worst part, because they won the, Fr the Hundred Years' War... There's a couple reasons. There's the massive uh, economic reasons of, you know, England trying to rule all of France. But um, the, the French monarchy had the loyalty for the most part, of the peasantry of France, which is just completely opposite of what this whole longbow myth implies. The longbow myth implies that, you know, they, the French, you know, government couldn't trust the French people because they were just waiting to have a revolution. And that's just not true. Uh, you know, the, the whole thing with Joan of Arc, you know, the French peasantry were having uprisings. <laughs> To get the British out. And that's ultimately one of the main reasons that the French won. Now, it's not Joan of Arc. Uh, militarily, her contribution was small, although morally important, I suppose. The thing that the French did was that they played to their strengths. They had a highly mobile cavalry army uh, and a very inventive artillery army. More on that in a second. Uh, and they had the loyalty of the peasantry. So the, even though the British held these castles and these towns, the French would show up outside the gates. The, there weren't enough English to, like, heavily man every possession in France. That's just not how this worked. Uh, so the French would show up outside the gate and say, you know, surrender in the name of the king. And the garrison, you know, maybe the garrison commander wouldn't want to do it, but the people in the town would. Maybe a lot of his soldiers would. There was often, uh, there was a lot of treachery, you know, people getting let in the front door or the back door or something at night. Uh, and there was a lot of people who just said, okay, 
fine. And surrendered. You know, people who are like, I'm not all that fond of the English, to be honest. They just pay my salary. If you're going to match that, then cool. We're done. You know, um, and by the time the English army would show up, the French would already have taken over the castle, the town, whatever, and then the French army would be, you know, somewhere else down the other side of the country trying to negotiate for the surrender of another castle. For the handful of places that were loyal to the English monarchy, then you come to the second thing that the French really had going for them, which was a very um, uh, well-developed artillery train. Now, this is often pointed to as gunpowder weapons eclipsing the longbows. That's not at all what this was. There were a couple battles where gunpowder weapons played a part. The artillery train was important for sieges. Uh, what the French did, which the British didn't do, which no one else did, was um, that instead of, you know, everyone else would... The English had cannons. And what they'd do is they'd get out at the long at the far part of the range, outside of arrow shot, because that's one of the advantages that these cannons had. Uh, they'd be outside of cannon shot, and they'd just start lobbing cannonballs up at the walls. And eventually it would batter it down, but it, you know, the, the, the amount of time it would take, because this is they're really inaccurate uh, at that range, um, and they lose a lot of the muzzle speed, uh, you know, it would take, um, you know, it wouldn't be too much of an advantage over, like, trebuchets in terms of the amount of time it would take to knock a hole in the castle wall. What the French did is that they used one of the oldest military devices in history, the trench. And they would get to just outside of arrow range and they'd dig a trench and they'd dig that trench up to the wall in such a way that the archers couldn't get the people digging the trench. And they would uh, haul the cannons up the trench uh, to the base of the wall. Uh, protect the cannons with uh, the trench and like baskets full of dirt and poke the cannons through these little holes between these baskets full of dirt point them point blank at the base of the wall and just blast away you didn't miss anything you got pretty much the full force of the muzzle blast and in comparison to older versions of siege craft the French cannons blasted down these English castles within no time flat um, this would have a very important immediate after effect within, you know, 10 years of finishing the Hundred Years War, the French took their newly successful military and their very, very successful artillery train and invaded Italy. And they blew through it like no one was there. Now, they didn't end up being able to conquer it because their logistical support still hadn't really developed the way the English had, uh, and they had no political support in Italy. Uh, so basically the entire peninsula turned against them as they moved on. But, you know, there was a year where they conquered, like, every city, you know, going down the east coast, the, uh, the west coast of Italy. Um, so <laughs> the French artillery was very important. Uh, the political support that the French had was very important. All of this sort of made the longbow uh, not as important in the long run. Okay, getting back to the myths. Myth number three. The British got a parliament because of the longbow. This tradition uh, where by uh, English peasants knew that they could kill a knight. They were knight killers now. They could, you know, hold their own on the battlefield just like the knights could. So they needed a place in society. Because somehow the only reason that you get a place in society is because you can kill someone. Um, okay. 
Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into that now, for reasons that I've already mentioned. However, I'll just say this. European dynasties deployed infantry army armies in various places at or around the same time all across Europe. Um, th this was a period where infantry armies were coming into wide deployment and acceptance. It wasn't just the English. The Scots had been doing it to great effect for, you know, a generation or two before the Hundred Years' War started. Um, in 1300, a army of, you know, French of uh, Flemish militiamen beat to death a French army, uh, you know, in a, in a ditch. Uh, the Swiss pikemen, of course, were massively famous already, uh, you know, at the same time and growing in, in notoriety for, you know, having the army of the Holy Roman Empire, the one of the strongest political entities in Europe, march into their country and get driven off a cliff by a bunch of peasants with pointy sticks. Uh, infantry armies were really coming into their own. It was becoming a core part of medieval militaries. And well, there's a lot more to be said about this than, and I'm heavily oversimplifying, uh, Parliament only happened in England. It didn't happen everywhere else in Europe. Despite the fact that the Holy Roman Emperor was deploying armies of pikemen within a generation of his defeat by the Swiss. More broadly, in terms of England, the longbow was a war-winning weapon for a very short time, and was only a night killer if wielded by extraordinarily experienced men operating as part of a well-organized army. There was not enough time for these longbowmen to completely flip the script on English politics, uh, e even if that was an effect that really was going to happen. Um, instead, what you see during the, the time period when the longbow was actually effective, you see England be classic feudal, high feudal monarchy. Um, the, the state ran well when there was a strong person on the throne, uh, and they could run as an autocrat, but based on their personality. When there was a weak king, the country descended into a civil war called the Wars of the Roses. Uh, in which Parliament played little or no part. Uh, Parliament was there. Parliament had been there. Parliament predated Longbows. Parliament would last long after Longbows. Parliament really didn't become prominent until the reign of the Tudors, after the end of the battlefield importance of Longbows. So, any sort of cause-and-effect relationship between Longbows as a weapon uh, and uh, political rights is illusory. There's obviously way more to say about this conversation. Uh, it gets into some political stuff, as I've already addressed, but we need to deal with it in context. And this episode is many things, but it is definitely not in context. So, the point is, longbows were not some kind of magical superweapon. Uh, the French, you know, it's sort of irrelevant whether the French could have had it, but they really couldn't have, and it's not a moral failing that they couldn't use a longbow. Uh, it's a societal issue. And uh, the British did not get Parliament because of longbows. Um, so thank you all for listening to this. This was uh, a lot of fun as an episode. I, I've been wanting to do a Q&A episode for a while, uh, as, as I've said. This is the first time where I sort, even sort of got enough questions to do one. Um, so thanks very much to Steve and everyone who asked for the longbows. Uh, and thank you everybody who sent me audio clips. Um, 
as of right now, I don't have the full list of audio clips, so I'm going to come back in several days and say now who they were. Thank you very, very much to David Crowther of the History of England podcast. Thank you very much to uh, Claude Myron Guzer of the Cannonball podcast, which is awesome. Uh, thank you very much to Thomas Daly of the Excellent American Biography podcast. And of course, Di, my wife, who is very, very, very patient. Oh, and huge thanks to Travis Dow of A Million Podcasts, but let's say uh, Bohemican for today, uh, for the, the intro uh, ad bit, uh, which was great. And everybody check out the History of Vikings podcast. Uh, it's Noah Tetzner. It's not about tableware. So thanks very much to all those guys, and uh, thank you all for listening. It's been another great year. Um, I never thought I would have gotten this long, and, you know, I'm going to be... I just got invited... You know, I, I've mentioned this. I got invited to this podcast convention in October, uh, in November, it, coming up real soon. If you're in the Northeast, definitely please come check it out. I'm just thrilled that I got invited. Um, this this little hobby of mine has really gone places. I've met so many wonderful people um, online uh, and increasingly in person. Uh, I, I've I've met a couple people, uh, Mark, Julian, and you know Thomas Daly uh, are in my area, or they were they they were passing through, and we met up, and it was great. Um, I you know this this has been uh, become a major part of my life in the last five years, and um, I'm just thankful, so thankful for everybody who donates, uh, who's a patron, um, and just for listening. You you make this happen. Uh, I, it would be pretty sad if I were just doing this uh, and no one was listening. So thank you so much. But, you know, you've all always been super generous with your time and your praise. Uh, and I, I just really want to thank you all so much. So thanks again for listening. And next month, at some point, I will somehow find it within me with everything that's going on with this conference and all these crossover episodes that I'm doing. Uh, I will I will be having out the episode on the commoners who lived in cities, uh, and that's that's going to be a ton of fun because obviously urban development is one of my other great passions, other than random bits of military history in the Middle Ages. So, um, really looking forward to that, um, and hopefully that'll be a great episode, and we'll get that out for you on time in November. All of which is to say. Remember to tune in next month for another exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern in the Wars of the Reformation. Baby
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.